Hey everybody, this is just a quick introductory note to say that during this episode toward the back half, I believe, I talk with Alice a little bit about the Bhagavad Gita and specifically about, well, I mention Amit Majmandar's translation of the Bhagavad Gita, which is called God Song. Uh, it's a little bit confusing the way I talk about it. I, I have not actually read Majmandar's translation, but uh, but I have ordered it and I do plan to now. I've read a, a different uh, translation a couple of times, but I, I just wanted to say here that I, you know, I think it's it's a worthwhile brief conversation. But since recording this, I recorded an episode with uh, Majmadar himself on a different topic, and the Bhagavad Gita came up, and he completely fucking changed my understanding of the poem. Like, just totally reoriented my sense of what's going on in it. So. Uh, it was really exciting to me to, to learn that, and uh, and I am eager to release that episode so you can hear. But I just wanted to mention it because it you know it it, it happened to come up in this earlier episode, and I would probably talk about it in a very different way if I were to record this conversation today. But in any case, this is going to be kind of a long one. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and might <laughs> might get me in uh, even more trouble than usual. Uh, anyway, let's get to the show right now. Who is Amy Hempel? Oh, Amy Hempel? She's a, an American short story writer. She's great. Oh, her, um, okay. Prob- probably her best known story is still her first, which is called The Cemetery Where Al Jolson is Buried. Well, she writes very cool. low, they're low in plot, but they tend to be very, they tend to be like almost ditzy, plotless meanderings that like you gradually figure out happened immediately in the wake of horrifying tragedy. <laughs> that sounds um, great. But she has, I think she has like maybe the very best dialogue of any fiction writer writing today. And I have a theory mm. that she, that her secret, like I have a theory that every single bit of dialogue in her stories is something she has actually overheard someone say. Like, yeah. I, like I kind of suspect she's like a, like a top level eavesdropper and just like perfectly because like even good novels that I enjoy, often their dialogue is a little like, well, you're kind of stitching things together here, but mm. hers is just like pitch, pitch perfect. Awesome. Ooh. Good to know. Um, How are you? Fucking exhausted. Uh, mm. You're a tired <laughs> man. Yeah. <laughs> Every single time I ask you how you are, you're just like, I'm exhausted. Kids and dog. Kids and dog, mm. man. I was just very in ma- very manly fashion reading my daughter's some bedtime stories, um, so I had to wrap wrap that up. One of which was the story that drives me fucking crazy. Do you have you ever heard of the? It's apparently a beloved classic. It's called The Rainbow Fish. Um, by Marcus Pfister. Sure. Yeah, maybe. It 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 reads like if. If like Jesse Waters, like a Fox News correspondent, wrote a parody Marxist children's book, it would be this. <laughs> it's like, whose planet? Like, is this even what? Like, it, it, the, the whole premise is this fish. This fish is very beautiful because it has all these beautiful, multicolored, shining scales. And then one of the fish, a little drab, a little sad drab fish, comes up to it and says. Give me one of your scales, <laughs> which is like a like one of his body parts, and then he <laughs> says, "No, I don't want to give you my scale." And then all of the other fish shun him, 
And then a wise octopus tells him that he has to tear off all of his scales, and give them away. And then he tears off all of his scales except for one and he gives them all to different fish. And then they all have one scale each and they're all equally drab except for one little scale. And then they go off and they could be friends. And they're like the other fish accept him now, the end. What the fuck is that about? Like, it's like, that's not even like, that's, I mean, it truly is like if Marxism were designed to fix the exist, like to, to dissolve the existence of personal property instead of private property, it was like, no one is allowed to have tchotchkes anymore. <laughs> Just redistribute the tchotchkes. Like, is that a nicely chosen belt that you have to, to, uh, to complete your ensemble? No, T cut it in half and give it away to your neighbors. It's just like, like, what is that about? What it's like clearly teaching a lesson, but like what lesson? What lesson do you think your daughter gets from it? I don't know. I like I I don't know what it could possibly be teaching her, but she's certainly not learned to share. <laughs> I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who have recommended the show to somebody you think might like it. That makes all the difference in the world. Thanks also to everybody who subscribed to the Slee Ricketts Secret Show. You can get a bunch of extra episodes, you can get free stickers, and you can get the, the joy of knowing that you're helping this show continue to exist. So do go to sleericketts.substack.com if you have not yet. I am grateful. This week I have a, I'm I've, historically I'm very bad at predicting what will offend people, but let me just say that for all those of you who were not at all offended by the rabbit hole episodes, there's at least a good chance I'm really gonna piss you off in this one. I think in this case, I, I, I don't think anyone will be mad at Alice, but I think a few people might be mad at me. Uh, we talked about gender and sexuality in poetry specifically. We were all the other topic we had that we were going to separate from was was a was a self-loathing. Why do poets hate themselves? But then they the two ended up being so uh, in, inextricable that I that I I left them all together here. So I have cut a couple of shorter segments um, that are maybe the most <laughs> the most problematic material, and that will appear on the Secret Show feed. Uh, but for now, here is Alice. <laughs> Uh, Alice, Alice and me talking about masculinity and femininity. Oh, and I, uh, it's, at some point we mentioned this term heteropessimism, which is a weird neologism. I will include a, a link to an article about it, but it's basically uh, straight women despairing of their straightness. Uh, so, all right, so uh, we'll get to that. And if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, then you can go again to sleeveregrets.substack.com. forwarded me this email looking at this question of why we found poetry to be so embarrassing supposedly mm. yeah, off yeah. the back of the AMA episode on the secret show and I found this poem by a guy called James Lachlan who I'd never heard of but who ended up founding New Directions with his family money uh, mm. which is basically directly about this so I thought maybe you could read that to sure. keep us off. James McLaughlin, this was published in Poetry in May of 1992. This is called The Shameful Profession by James Lachlan. 
For years, I tried to conceal from the villagers that I wrote poetry. I didn't want them to know that I was an oddball. I didn't want the young men with beards wearing baseball caps who come to the liquor store in their pickups to buy six packs to know that I was some kind of sissy. I decided it was prudent to buy the Daily News instead of the Times at the drugstore. I burned my poem drafts at home before I took the trash to the dump. Kids scavenge around there, and the old man who does the recycling is nosy. I took every precaution. But our town is not an easy place to keep secrets. Everybody knows everybody, and they gossip when they're getting their mail at the post office. Things began to come apart. A young man with long hair and a city accent showed up and asked in the stores where the poet Lachlan lived. Then a pipe burst, and the plumber told people that he saw thousands of books stacked in the cellar, some of them in foreign languages. Next day, the head of the volunteer fire department came, pretending to check the wiring. I began to get a bit paranoid. The town trooper is supposed to check each rural road once a week, but he came up our road past my house three days in succession. The axe fell when somehow a reporter for the county paper heard the rumors and there was a little item. Local poet caught speeding twice on 272. Motor vehicles may suspend license. Much has changed in my life now. Nobody has laughed at me in the street. I'm over six feet, weigh 245, and look pretty fit for my age. But they look at me in a funny way. I don't go to Apple House, our grocery store, anymore because a little girl with her finger in her nose pointed me out to the, sh to the checkout lady and asked her something. Now I get my liquor and supplies in the next towns and order, and order honey-baked hams from Virginia by mail. My life is all different now that they know I write poems. But if they think they can shame me out of it, they're very much mistaken. I'm not breaking any law. I'll go on with it unless they have me declared a public nuisance and have me sent to the Institute. I've heard there is a poor old fellow in the Institute who claims he is Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. He'll understand and be my friend. We can recite to each other if they won't let us have paper and pencils. I only just noticed that it was Wordsworth instead of Wadsworth. Yeah, yeah, I, that yeah, is weird. I don't know if that's, I guess, I mean, it's presumably a joke because it's a crazy guy. Mm. I don't know. Not the world's best poem, but. No, no, no. I kind of, I found it endearing. Yeah. Um, also, 245 at six foot, like, that's, if you look fit, like, if you, you don't, I feel like you don't look pretty fit at 245 and six, like, that's, you, you, you have to be, like, fucking jacked. Like, you have to be a bodybuilder, 245 <laughs> and six foot tall, like, that, I don't, I mean, you, because you, you could look like, you could look perfectly normal at 245, but, like, if you look pretty fit, you probably look like a fucking beast. <laughs> like, that's, like that's a like for a guy in 19 i mean i guess like i guess like gay culture was more into like body shaping than straight culture back then but like boy oh, he, so he do worked, you, that do guy you worked this? out is all i'm saying he worked out right right <laughs> do you read this is a gay poem because i did it first but james lachlan isn't gay he's not i thought he was i know right this is gayer oh, than christmas but it's i thought he not, was gay not because even the way he says it, he's like, I didn't, what did he say? Because he says, I didn't want them to know that I was some kind of sissy. Like, rather than I didn't want them to think I was some kind of sissy. Mm. I mean, some kind of sissy is like a weird phrasing anyway. And obviously sissy is a, a derogatory term. But like, 
it is a little odd, I would think, for us if he if he was straight. Huh. Yeah, it totally reads like he's talking about being gay in a small town, not talking about being a poet yeah. in a small town. Right. But he had a, a bunch of wives. I mean, that's not to say that he, he couldn't have had other stuff going on, but um Okay. Huh. Yeah. Confusing poem. Yeah. But I thought it it got a little bit at the question and I wanted to ask you yeah. if you feel like writing poetry is something that you have to hide from people. Uh, it's not something I hide, but it's definitely not something I advertise. Fair. Like, I, yeah. I, it's definitely not something I advertise. And like, if, if for like some, because of some personal connection, somebody at a party says like, oh, are you a poet? Or like, I heard you were a poet. I, 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 you know, I typically cringe away from that and sort of joke it off and try not to talk more about it. Not, I mean, it did seem like I, I am a little bit bad. Like, I think this poem makes a lot more sense if it is an allegory. Right? Yeah. So like, weird. It, like I get being embarrassed by poetry, but it seems like this particular way of framing it, as well as like calling it the shameful profession. Like, I don't know, maybe in 1992, but like what, like who's, is it a profession? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know very few people for whom it's honest to God a profession anymore. Um, yeah, it's it's either a really weird poem about being ashamed and worried about being a poet, or it's a it's a great poem about being gay in a small town. Yeah. Well, great is overstating it. Like, it's a, right. it's a solid yeah. poem about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, th like this flavor of embarrassment seems strange to me because the 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 other part of it that that makes this all not ring true with regard to poetry is that people don't fucking care like they like Absolutely. people people aren't out to like find out the poets like people do have prurient curiosity especially back before it was socially acceptable about like oh is this is he gay or not? like that is something people would gossip about do like who would ever care if not to have something to talk about at a party or a barbecue about whether someone was a poet or not like yeah. it's just and something embarrassing it's just like something you try to do that you don't really want to like I, I think i think it's not that poetry in itself is shameful or embarrassing it's that it's that bad poetry is shameful or embarrassing and Almost all poetry is bad poetry, and almost everyone who says, I'm a poet or I write poetry, writes bad poetry. And most people aren't especially interested in finding out the difference. And so it's sort of like that evolutionary tick where like we, like, like biologists think that we developed just a reflexive uh, uh, disgust and, and avoidance of anything that squirmed on the ground mm. because like if if you if you flinch away from like a a big earthworm and it then like no harm no foul but if you don't flinch away from like a black mamba you're fucked so yeah. we just go ahead and we say like well let's just assume all squirmy things on the ground are venomous snakes and you're like let's just assume anybody you hear about in your life and not on the news who's well if there's someone on the news it's usually something horrible in a different way but like Anybody you hear about in your life who says, like, who has, like, poet attached to his name, it's a safe bet that that's going to be bad poetry. And so I think, like, that's what most, that's what, like, I at least definitely don't want to be associated with in people's minds, which is why I don't, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't, like, you don't need to actively hide it, but 
you definitely don't go out of your way to own it. Yeah, I want to disagree with you, but I can think of, you know, too many examples of people who, you know, in their Twitter bio or their little, their little Facebook bio say, you know, John Smith, poet, and, and that, deadly, that stuff's deadly. not good. Yeah. Um, Donald Hall said a, a nice thing about James Lachlan. Oh, I thought it was a, a useful quote. Perhaps if the poet pretends that he does not take his work seriously, he's free to continue it. Um, I thought that was kind of a, a bit of a gentler way of saying what you're saying, maybe. Yeah. How do you, what is, how do you read free? I don't know. Actually, when I think about it, it's more free from himself, free from his own expectations. And that's what I think is behind this whole question and issue is the question, who do you think you are to be going around writing poetry or writing what you think is poetry and calling yourself a poet? And if you're free from that expectation of yourself and from that kind of, from advertising yourself in that way, then you can sneak around the back and, and write some poems. There's a rant and or, or a riff or whatever in um, Nick Hornby's uh, book about a boy reading in college, and the the main character who's a who's a uh, just like classic piece of shit, just like great great piece of shit character, totally worthless, but he is sort of on a sort of date with this woman who has a who has a young son, and like he's wanting it to be a date, and I think she's not necessarily. But she offers to for them to sing for him, and he says, "Sure, why not?" And then uh, she plays a song on the piano, and she and her son both sing a song with their eyes closed. Mm, Joni Mitchell, and, I think. Yeah. Oh, do you remember it? Yeah, I just read it recently. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so do you remember the riff about singing with your eyes closed? <laughs> not, not, not precisely. No. Well, it's specifically like most people are not good singers. But if you sing with your eyes closed in company, that's like almost 100% of the time, just deadly, deadly. Like it's, you can't help but be just cripplingly embarrassed for the other person. And I think like he even makes some allowance for like, if you are a true genius and you sing with your eyes, like maybe then we just like to the point where we say like, oh God, I'm so glad his eyes are closed because if his eyes were open, I would just like dissolve into tears on the floor because it's so beautiful. But at least if you sing in a mediocre way with your eyes open, like a karaoke, you're kind of in communication mm. with the other people also perceiving it. But if your eyes are closed, you're having an experience. <laughs> it's like a powerful emotional experience. And if the other people listening to you are not having a powerful emotional experience, then they can't help but just die with embarrassment for you. Yeah. And it feels a little bit like with Lachlan or with some poets, maybe what Hall, like part, part of what Hall's getting at is like, don't 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 sing with your eyes closed if you're going to be a poet. Like, <laughs> let other people know you're in on the joke of how silly this is. Right, right, right. So, are you embarrassed to be a poet then? Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe this is a case where I do kind of come back to Brian's question about in in front of whom, like in what company? Hmm. Um, because if it's just among other people who write poetry, I can speak in in like you know casual social terms or even in like casual nerdy jargony terms right 
and if it's even among like anybody else who makes or does art or is involved in the arts then it can still be they can still have a degree of like shop talk about it right but with whom would i want it brought up that i write poetry who is not like a a reader of my like like if it was someone who had somehow read a poem of mine, that would that would be like flattering and embarrassing in a different way. But like, what is the conversation in which I would want people like I would want to be talking with somebody about the fact that I write poetry that wasn't like a shop talk conversation? Like, I can't imagine what that would be where it wouldn't be horrifying. Like, because it also, like, I couldn't help but imagine the whole time the other person trying desperately to keep a straight face. <laughs> and, like, or, and, or, like, act interested. Act so interested. I just, like, I can't yeah. conceive of what that would be. Hmm. Yeah, well, talking with family is, is where it comes up the most. And I think you talked about this in an early episode about going home and, and, people asking you how things were going with yeah. how's it going with the book we'll see kind of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah yeah i have okay. a, lot, a lot of artists in my family so some of that is a little bit alleviated by mm. that but what about you so you've mentioned in the past that you have like a particular unease about poetry around your family is that yeah what is that look like or what does that feel like my dad is a a writer and an academic mm -hmm. but he is kind of on a i can't really follow him where he goes in his thinking he like he doesn't hold forth and right. explain it to me he's just like kind of off in his own world thinking about big difficult topics to do with art right. and the nature of art we have really good conversations where he asks me about my work, but I think when he read my book, he was a bit, he certainly didn't ring me and say like, my daughter's a genius. <laughs> 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 uh, and, but, and, and my mom, you know, my mom didn't finish high school. There's not really any books at mom's house, but the two books that there are, are, are my two books, um, which is wow. it's sort of heartbreaking to me because I can remember having a conversation with her very early on about one of the first poems I got published that was about her and I showed it to her and she just said, I don't understand it, darling. Yeah, so so that's that's mum and dad and then my older brother and sister and probably to a large extent my little brother, like I think just see me see that side of me as as sort of it's like a weird um habit, illness. <laughs> tendency something that i have to do that that they they will sort of look at from afar and go well i suppose she she has to do that right. like alice <laughs> collects rare bottle caps totally totally that's what i'm going for um this is probably all a little bit like meaner than it actually is like they all they all are interested to hear how it's going but you just can't talk about it, right? Because how it's going is usually pretty fucking terrible. Yeah. But you can't sort of sit down with your brother and be like, well, I don't know if I'll ever write a good poem again. 
<laughs> I feel completely paralyzed, yeah. you know, like you can't really be honest about it. And so it becomes, uh, you end up giving this really curtailed version of what's going on that's re- not very honest. And then the conversation just moves on to something that you can actually talk about. So yeah. I suppose it's not embarrassment or shame so much as like, I don't want to bother them with my strange addiction. So is that true for you of any topic? No, no, I'm happy to like, like there are, surely there are other topics they don't particularly know about, but that are relevant to you and your well-being, and they would be happy to talk with you about them because they concern you. So is this, is this particular mm. in, in that? I think so. Yeah. Like I could talk about my day job with them easy because which also doesn't interest them in, on its own, no, but no. because of you, they, they like want to hear and think about it. And... Yeah, that's right. It's just the lack of reference points, I think. And is it because yeah. so day jobs are like an office job or a day job, like that's something, even if they don't know about it in particular, it's not hard for them to get their arms around the idea of it. Totally. Whereas mm. with poetry, you maybe need a little more context. But is part of it also that as brilliant and skillful and accomplished as I'm sure you are at your day job, you don't, if you won the lottery, you wouldn't be sad to move on from that. But <laughs> but if you, I don't know, maybe the lottery is different in Australia. I don't know. Is they still Do they stone you to death if you win the lottery over there? Yeah, they stone, um, they okay, stone you to right, death. Yeah, so not that lottery. Um, but like you... you Presumably, like you don't care about your day job on this in the same way that you care about your poetry. Is that I don't part think of I care that? about anything in the same way that I care about my poetry. Okay, so but the, that, right then, yeah. then that's part. Like, not only do they not know how to talk about it or think about it, and not only do they not care about it except for you, but like you care about it so fucking much that it's almost that it's impossible embarrassing. To... Yeah. Do you think it would be? Because I wonder, because um, I do, I mean, I have had friends who are religious talk to me about how alienating it is to be around mostly secular people mm-hmm. in a mostly mm-hmm. secular culture when they have a gut, which like to the outside is is like a, a, a deep emotional and practical and logistical devotion to something that to most people around them is either non-existent or meaningless. Yeah. I think it's really similar to that. Hey, like how could you express how important it is? They can't, when they can't understand my words are failing me here, but this is what these conversations are like, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but you don't, it doesn't seem like you feel that way. It seems like you've got a pretty good, you can talk to your dad at least about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's very—he's—he's he's an art major, and he paints now that he's retired. I mean, he was an architect, which is the most <laughs> practical. It's like the the highest intersection of like practical professional work and art at the same time. You know, like it's mm. uh, other than like I guess like filmmaker if you happen to be there, but like in a kind of a, in a sort of like normal way, you can be like a professional artist sort of and be an architect. Yeah, and he and he like cares a lot about art. And my brother is an artist, and I certainly talk to him a fair amount about it. And my sister, and my mom, both have like an interest in in the arts and just have been used to dealing with the rest of us. So, 
uh, <laughs> yeah, like the, that's not, that's not impossible, but there is, um, I do have a little bit of trouble even among other poets, honestly, uh, oh, really? about the, with the importance of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and part of that and is like a self-deprecation kinda... thing. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was worried yesterday because I was kind of making fun of you on WhatsApp. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like quoting you back to yourself in this episode that you did with Cameron, where you guys just got so fucking nerdy. And I, like, I hope it's obvious that it's done with like this. Oh, this please, yeah, of, yeah, Like, yeah. I could never follow you into that territory. Like, you would be horrified to know how much I use Google just to talk to you. But um, <laughs> I, I had yeah. to Google header of pessimism. I had to do a little homework on on your I conversation with that Ursula. Until three Shaw. weeks ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, do you feel like you are? I don't know, further down the path, like more committed than most of the poets you speak to? No, but I do feel uh, as if they are have a healthy. Like most poets I know, have a healthier attitude toward it. Healthier. Like, a joke poet, poets like to make with each other is some variation of, oh, we're just writing garbage and none of this is going to matter anyway. Nobody's going to read it. And it's, you know, none of this is real poetry. And we like, we can read the real poets and look at their work and think about like the real poetry that matters. And we're just sticking around some variation on that. I know that was a very poorly uh, executed joke, but uh, probably because the, the line, the um, Kierkegaard has a great line that, um, you know, you can tell what someone's in denial about when everybody else in the room is laughing and a chill runs down his spine. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I think my poetry is actually great. It's that when I think about that, like, oh, probably everything I'm writing is garbage and failed and meaningless. For me, the necessary next step is like, and so I should shoot myself. Like, like how, like, how could you, how could you like, actually think that that like you have no hope of writing anything meaningful and devote yourself to poetry like you have to believe that it's at least possible for you to write what? something that counts that matters that lands if not it's like the, just the, the just there's the yawning maw of chaos and despair like other like yeah like the the stakes are are high man <laughs> but know? that's why it's that's why it's a bit like religious devotion isn't it yeah 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 right yeah do you know where you will spend the afterlife yeah do you know where so, you will spend posterity right <laughs> so i want to try to bring in all this masculinity femininity stuff too so does yeah. any does being a poet diminish your sense of yourself as masculine not really but i also have a particular I am very uh, enthralled to traditional notions of masculinity, not because I consciously verbally endorse them or think that they're good, but they just are the case. And like, they're just stitched into my sense of what I ought to be. And I'm total, like the primary ways in which I excel in satisfying masculine stereotypes and like I'm tall, I have like a prominent jaw and brow and I have a deep voice. 
all 100% the product of a pituitary tumor. Like, like they're not like, none of those are actually even like genetically the case. Like, which is to say like, were I to have fathered any boys, I would like be passing along like small Irishman genes. Like it wouldn't be like, none of this is actually in my, in my coding. Uh, so I feel very implicated by like every masculine stereotype. Like I, I feel as if I ought to be living up to these, but one oddly, like one, I guess like traditional Western standard, though I guess you have to go like post Greece, um, that has never really bothered me. I mean, since maybe middle school is the, is the straight gay thing. Like that is not like, I talked to a, a, a guy friend recently who's like very traditionally masculine guy in a number of respects. And, and I just asked him about like what he thought about what it meant to be a man or what it felt like to be a man or growing up. And for him, he, the first thing he listed was like in his dress and in his presentation, it was very important that he not appear gay. Like that oh, was, okay. again, like not, not his con, he's like a thoughtful liberal guy, but like what he felt growing up, you know, like it was important not to seem gay. And that is not, I mean, I did a lot of theater stuff. <laughs> I grew up in Atlanta with like, so it was like a very vibrant gay culture, but that has never really been part of the bargain for me. And if anything, like I have been told at different times that I did I seem gay or like dress gay? Like I, I th that's, that has not ever bothered me one way or another. So like even James Lachlan saying, like, I didn't want them to think I was some kind of sissy that just like, it, it's hard for me to compute that. Like, I don't, I don't know. It just doesn't seem, I also, and this is maybe a topic for another time or for no time, but, uh, <laughs> but I am a little bit curious because I definitely think like on the, I mean, I, Kinsey, who knows what any of that adds up to, but like he, he at least introduced this notion that, that sexuality is a spectrum and that most people don't fall at either hard extreme mm. and that maybe there's some even fluidity within one's life. And, and maybe that fluidity is more for women than men and whatever. But mm. like, I definitely am not like a hard a hundred percent straight guy. I mean, I am like a, not that interested in seeing naked dudes, but like, without saying without saying like a horrible slur that's been used in horrible ways for a long time like for most of my life well into my early 20s people called me fag or some variation right. on that like f all the time even like with affection so like th that that you know i am married to a woman i don't plan on shaking that up anytime soon but you know like in some cosmic sense Am I like, you know, where would I locate myself in some like matrix of sexuality? I don't know, man. But I also kind of feel like, well, who cares? Like definitely who cares what like some bearded white 40 year old married guy like could theoretically think sexually. Like what does it fucking matter? But I do know that for a number of especially like married female artists, that there have been like essays and things that have come out about like, well, it's important for me to acknowledge that I'm queer. I think for a while it was bisexual. And now I think queer is now the kind of the broader term. And you've even made comments about like, oh, it, like marriage seems too hetero or like, het like I don't like I, you, you know, like I remember listening to the podcast early on. I'm very, 
I'm just very like dumb and literal minded about this stuff. And so the first several episodes of Poetry Says I listened to, I was like, oh, Alice is an Australian lesbian. And then I and then I was like, oh, she's she's with with Tom. And I was like, oh, Tom is a trans man. Like it's just like that was my like I was like of like statistical possibilities. I was like, yes, Occam's razor states. This is like like relatively unconventional arrangement is the most likely explanation. But like it does seem to have some meaning for you, whether or not you ever sleep with you know like not to get into your marriage or your or not your your non marriage your your business. But like, does that matter? I don't know. It, like does the, does like theoretical like I made a joke about being a non practicing incel. But like being like a non-practicing queer person, like does that is that a meaningful thing? Yeah, I don't really, I don't really know what direction to go in with this. Um, or is just heter heterosexuality is so is so mortifying that like any distance you can put. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. That's 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 not it for me. So I was um, I grew up in the nineties. Uh, I was a teenager in the 90s and I was very, very much in love with my best friend uh, whose name is also Alice. And I came out to all my friends as a lesbian before I was, I don't know, when I was like 14, 15. Yeah, and so, and, and then I went overseas and traveled for a bit. Um, and yeah, without sort of telling other people's stories. Yeah, when I, when I met Tom... It was very, very inconvenient that he was yeah, a guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, at the time, he had beautiful, like, long blonde hair <laughs> and and convinced me that he was very into Annie DeFranco. So I was like, oh, this is fine. <laughs> she had a similar experience, didn't she? Where she, like, fell in yeah, love with a guy and was sort of wrote uh, Dilate and then was sort of like, well, I I didn't, didn't mean to have a heterosexual yeah. streak, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, so far my heterosexual streak has lasted for 20 years. So I'm a fairly unconvincing lesbian at this point. I mean, the, the most I think I could probably describe myself as, like, practically speaking, is as an ally. But right. I I know that I feel the same as I did when I was eight years old, which is, like, right. the, the way that I feel about men and women and people in general is, is the same now as it was then. But my life looks extremely straight. So... Yeah, that's yeah. probably where where you get the impression that, yeah, and you know yeah. i was hanging out with a friend of mine last night who's just like our joke is that we'll both leave our respective partners and go off and be late in life lesbians eventually and she's just always telling me how gay i am so <laughs> you know that's that's all in play to some degree but i feel like i would be taking up space it's really not mine if i was wandering around being like queer poet alice right, allen yeah, like yeah. you know no yeah but like I, it's I, been I, a... I enjoy all the privileges of of like passing straight sure and, yeah and like yeah. but like that's a pretty good answer like because it's been a really big important part of your emotional and social life like like the, it's part of who you are for that like very convincing reason I think yeah, the, I think some of the of... yeah the like and then I think some of the essays that we that my like Joanne and I had seen were it was partly like women who had not previously come out or not like so that maybe they were they were sort of needing to come to terms with something that hadn't had room to breathe before mm. their marriages. And it is like just coming back to the Lachlan poem. It is a little bit like like the, being a poet because it's like 
<laughs> most days I'm not a poet. Most right. days yeah, yeah, yeah. I go and and send emails in an office and I I do laundry and I make a podcast and I talk to my friends. Um you know, I I'm not a poet most of the time. And I suppose like practically speaking I'm gay like 0% of the time these days. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's some, like some stand-up yeah. com- comic made the point that like, like if you if you're a straight woman, it means that you're attracted to like an extremely small slice of men. <laughs> like, like it means like most <laughs> men you find repulsive. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. But then yeah. there's like this small set of exceptions, right? Which gets into this this heteropessimism stuff that I talked to Ursula about. Um, I don't think either of us were ready to talk about it. I certainly didn't have a fully formed idea on it, but. Um, I, d- I thought it was very useful, the idea that like a lot of women who are in relationships with men spend just an inordinate amount of time complaining about just how terrible men are. Mm-hmm. And there's a really wonderful uh, YouTuber, Natalie Wynn, aka ContraPoints, who has a, a great mm-hmm. video about this. Um, and she just talks about like what what's up with straight women? Like they just hate mm. men. <laughs> <laughs> Are they okay? <laughs> yeah. Is that some is so? I, I asked you on WhatsApp is is hetero pessimism just iron, ironic misandry rebranded and or without the irony? And you you replied, "Let's find out," <laughs> which immediately preceded our conversation. But I also wonder, like, is it, is it just like the old fashioned battle of the sexes? Like, is it just, is it just like when you are like one of the advantages or disadvantages of heterosexuality is that you're sleeping with someone who's belongs to a group of which you're not a member. Mm-hmm. Like if, it, if it's all men sleeping together or all women sleeping together, it's harder to complain about the other set because you're also part of that set. But if you're sleeping with people who don't belong to your group, then like it seems natural to make generalizations about them, like fairly, unfairly, sloppily, cautiously, whatever. Like particularly if your friends are mostly of your sex and they also are straight, then like why wouldn't you? get together with the ladies and gripe about men. But like, why, like men do that too with about women only, you know, at least outside of certain gloomy um, right wing portions of the internet. It's, it's so frowned upon that liberal or leftist men mostly keep it offline. I think, like, isn't that just a normal natural thing to do? Yeah. I think it's like a pressure, pressure release, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a huge gulf. I think between between men and women to get like super binary about it um, that I think it's really normal to just feel like like uh, so many of my conversations with my my girlfriends are just like I, I just don't understand like what what is he doing what is he what does he want um, I don't understand him and yeah. and all I can say is I don't understand him either, but you're great and don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you did and you I, read yeah. um sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. 
the 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 Lauren Groff novel Fates and Furies. Did you read that? No, I didn't. No. It's pretty good. Like I I enjoyed it. She's a I I find her to be a, um, an engrossing fiction writer. It was the first half was all was all from the, it was the story of a marriage told from the perspective or not you know sort of the close third perspective of the man, and the second half was from the perspective of the woman. And they didn't exactly take place during the same time period, but they kind of covered a lot of the same events. And the the gimmick or premise of, well, I guess that was the gimmick. The, the premise of a lot of it was that much of what he thought was happening was not what was happening. And like, A, she had a really big dark secret where she had done a really horrible thing in the past that he did not know about. And B, she was the shoemaker's elves doing all the work to support his dazzling career um, and oh, it kind okay. of made all these arrangements behind his back in order to let him be the star he was and that was fine but the thing that did sort of surprise me about it that just seemed like like surely those kind of relationships do exist I don't, I don't know if that's like quite as much the norm as like meme world would have one think but you know like surely that kind of thing happens but also it just seems strange to me like oh so there was nothing that he knew about that she didn't know about like there was no like, there wasn't it wasn't even that like he knew about any of her secrets like he had no perspective like her perspective a hundred percent contained his perspective yeah like like this idea that men are so simple right. um they have they have almost no inner life and the inner life they do have we can just basically figure out through inference um, yeah. And these these conversations I have with my girlfriends often run along the lines of like, either, you know, option A, he's totally evil and fucking with you on a level that is like, just like totally unforgivable, right. or he's just not thinking about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, it's not personal, and there's nothing going on there. And I generally sort of because I have, like, I feel lucky that I have a lot of like male friends and female friends um and when i speak to my guy friends they're just so often like their minds are just not on the same stuff right and yeah it, it's not it's not simplicity so much as like they're just thinking about other things different a different set of things yeah oh, so i think you, that's i think that's probably pretty true you had asked in, in an email whether being whether writing poetry made one less masculine, which which I, I you know I, it's not especially my experience or feeling, uh, or whether like or whether it made one more feminine. And you you did have the Anne Sexton. Do you want to read that? Because I oh I don't, yeah I just feel sort of baffled by almost all of this. Oh really? Yeah, like okay. like the relationship. I you all see. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, so Anne Sexton's poem, The Black Art. A woman who writes feels too much. Those trances and portents. As if cycles and children and islands weren't enough. As if mourners and gossips and vegetables were never enough. She thinks she can warn the stars. A writer is essentially a spy. Dear love, I am that girl. What a mic drop. Ah, so good. She's she's so bad so much of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's just great. 
Love it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's what's the line in uh, the importance of being earnest is where one the character says something, and the other one says, "Is that clever?" And the answer is something like, "Well, it's perfectly phrased," and and that's you know that's as that's as much as the same thing. <laughs> and I do feel a little bit like this is like, well, it's so well done that it has the perfect cadence of of like a a, a brilliantly encapsulated experience put into words, but I don't totally know how to put it together. Oh, okay. Like well, a writer just... is essentially, is why I think I follow that. I mean, I, I, I would say like a writer is essentially a vampire, but because the difference with a spy is like a spy is reporting to a higher power for some greater good, whereas a, whereas a writer is just, just sucking blood, just leeching. Um, but I... Yeah, well, like, what is this relationship between being a woman and writing? Well, I, I guess it, it seems totally clear to me, and this is, I think, going back to the family stuff and the embarrassment stuff. One of the things that I, think, that I find poetry asks of me is to put it above everything else, to be anywhere near good enough at it. To, yeah. to keep going and um you know i i don't have children i i think you know often like almost constantly how how could this life possibly work if i did and i know that mm -hmm. there'd be there'd be women listening who have children and who write poems and and um and they're probably you know seeing hearing exactly how ridiculous i am but yeah, this what the what this poem kind of says to me is like if you decide that you're going to dabble in this black art, you are essentially saying it's more important than any of that stuff, including the children. Yeah. And that's that that makes perfect sense. And that and that like then the elaboration of as if cycles and children and islands weren't enough, as if mourners and gossips and vegetables were never enough. That all makes good sense in keeping with what you said and and even a writer is essentially a spy dear love i am that girl that all adds up i don't know what to do with she thinks she can warn the stars and it and the opening is also odd because it seems like a right a woman who writes feels too much that they they link together for me so a woman who writes feels too much those trances and portents and then she thinks she can warn the stars it's like she thinks she's all powerful. She thinks she's so powerful that she should be have access to these tools and be allowed to like wield this power to make things. Why doesn't she just stay home and be satisfied with what she'd be given anyway? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think I do, I do get the poem better now. It may be just that it's um, clues and dog whistles don't don't trick like don't set me off quite the same way so like i'm not i'm not primed to read the rest of it the way that i mm. could but i do like that and i like the title mm. yeah it's just like it's it needs to be read by somebody better prepared for it than me which maybe just means that it's, it's not really a poem for men i don't know um, <laughs> well but i do like that like i like your paraphrase of it uh and that makes sense to me because even like, I, you know, I love my daughters and, and I, you know, I think any, any, you know, 
I don't, I don't know any writer who would say my work is more important than my children, at least no writer who like has an active role in, in his children's life or in his, or his children's life. But what's also true is that when someone says, well, what do you, don't worry about what you're going to do with your life. Your, your accomplishment is you, is your children. Like, fuck you. That's a, like, that's totally unsatisfactory. Like that's, it's not even unsat. It's like, it's not even that that's not good enough. It's like, that's beside the point. That's a set, like children are maximally important, but there's like that, that's a separate category and it doesn't in any way answer this other need, which is also mm. maximally important. Yeah. Do children or the children are your real masterpiece as like, like grounds for summary execution, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally well, but that is, that is the line, isn't it? That just gets bandied around so much. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, no, I've been, I've been told that before, uh, but I think it's bullshit, and it's, mm. and I like, I would like to meet the person who's really satisfied with. Though, maybe, and so Coleman is an interesting case because I in, I think it was in a, an exchange, uh, an email exchange. He, he, because he was the one who early on um, brought up the question of talking about your family or your loved ones in your poems mm. and that there is some there is a an imposition if not a violation there and yeah i and i think you know you and i both said like oh i didn't didn't occur to me that you that you would ask permit like you know i mean i you know i i particularly with the like the podcast i try like try to be thoughtful about not like totally exposing my kids in weird ways, but, but like for, with poems, I don't know. I was going to make a really good poem. It's hard to say what, where you, like the thing you don't want to do is humiliate someone in a shitty poem. Right. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think I, like I said to, to Coleman something like, well, but I think like, finally, I just, I just care it's not that I care more about the poem than I care about the person, but I care more about the poem than I care about decorum. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. And his response and was like, "Well, but part of like for me, I have to like I'm a pastor, and I have to think about the well-being of my community, and I have to think about the role I play and what it means to the." And so I think like that may be a case of like a, someone who has like a sane, healthy relationship to poetry who says like, "Oh no, this is not a." demonic god to whom i will sacrifice all things in it like in in a hope ever to be favored by it even though it mostly just devours <laughs> my my uh my possessions and ignores me because i actually have a god that, like that i have a normal relationship with and so i'm not you know it's like maybe that's the answer and maybe they're, they're surely their parents who similarly have a don't don't like raise kids while also building a, a blood shrine in their closets to this evil <laughs> evil fake god called poetry that is such a perfect way to put it. Oh my god! I don't know. I I do feel as if, yeah. If I'm going to be any good at it, it has to be my higher power, and that's not healthy. So I don't po know how to poetry has to be your higher power. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and and you're using you're using AA language there. Yeah. Mm. We should say also like the other question that got raised in this exchange with the listener was the question of success. That like. Is it shameful to be a poet or is it shameful to be a poet who doesn't have anything to show for himself? 
like who can't yeah. demonstrate that it matters in any way that he's a poet other than that he says he is right like if you have yeah, yeah. if you have significant accomplishments that are recognized by the larger world then that's a different story maybe but simply like like maybe also related to this whole shame question is is a uh, po- like poet's long time relationship with intoxication as well as with like formal even like militant sobriety so what is that does like is higher was that a was that a happenstantial reference or uh, I mean, do you also don't feel like feel free not to get into all this if it's not if it's <laughs> like you'd rather not i think it's a useful way to phrase it because it suggests okay. like that everything in your life comes second to that and that is like the success thing is so interesting because it's like how much right. at what point are you because like when i when jess emailed me and said like oh yeah well let's do it let's do your book i was just like i'm done i'm out yes it's yeah. like i've 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 solved the problem and then obviously that fades and then you want the next thing and then you reach a point like kind of like i'm in now where it's like well what are you even doing are, are you doing right. anything yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe you should give up <laughs> right uh that's overstating it and Whenever I say anything like that, I get people messaging me being like, Alice, you could, don't talk that way. It's like, don't worry. Like, I'm not, I'm not giving anything up. But um, the thought creeps in that there's do a, you, there's a high likelihood I'm wasting my life. Do you get those prompts purely from friends or, or from people who have more of a poetry world relationship to you? Uh, yeah, poetry world relationship, but not like fans or anything. Like, not like anything right? No, no, like... no. But I mean, like, like you're, those are not like people whose primary connection to you preceded poetry or, or yeah, was yeah, apart yeah. from poetry. That's like people you know mostly through poetry world. Yeah, yeah. People that I don't that I've know outside of poetry wouldn't even. I mean, they wouldn't okay. probably even know how to take that statement. Right. So here's my diabolical question then why do you think they say that um because if maybe because if i give up then they have to give up too is this like if one couple in a group of friends gets divorced isn't that a yeah isn't that kind of a thing yeah we're gonna reach that stage soon hey yeah oh i did want to read you this ransom poem that i like that I, i suspect you will hate um, Ransom. So John Crow Ransom, he was the the foremost of the fugitives at the time. He's since been eclipsed by um, Robert Penn Warren. I mean, he was eclipsed eventually by Robert Penn Warren already in his lifetime. But he uh, he was pretty he, pretty sparing about what he published in his lifetime, and mm-hmm. uh, I believe stopped publishing at all. Uh, you know, a good long while before before his death, but he, he also wrote a fair amount of criticism. I have always had mixed feelings about him because the impression I always have is that he either writes these sort of these poems that are sort of too, too perfect and too tidy and too kind of exquisitely buttoned up or that sort of tried to be jaunty, playful, sloppy in a way that felt like a stepdad at a sleepover using slang he didn't quite have mastery of. Mm. Um, but he has a handful of poems that I 
that, that I, I can't deny. And this is just a tiny one that's barely a poem even that I just read and was surprised by and, and sort of love. It's called Men. And it, it just leaps into the context of The Tempest, Shakespeare's play, mm-hmm. where uh, uh, Miranda, daughter of Prospero, has been stranded with her father on this island. And, you know, for her whole life, she was an infant when they, when they left uh, Naples, I think. So for her whole life, she's lived on an island with her father and a bunch of magical spirits and Caliban, who's of, of ambiguous uh, species and categorical existence. He's either some, by some people treated as like just simply a human being who's then derided for his race and by others as a kind of a something else. But in the context of the play, the supposition is that Miranda has never seen a man, at least not in the way that somebody who say is attracted to men would see a man right she does meet ferdinand who's a handsome and virtuous prince and he eventually marries her but but this is just when the ship arrives and all of the sailors come up on shore Mm -hmm. so this is called men how many goodly creatures are there here miranda doted on the sight of seamen the very casual adventurers who took a flood as quickly as a calm, and kept their blue eyes blue to any weather. This was the famous manliness of men. And when she saw it on the dirty strangers, she clapped her pretty hands in sudden joy. Oh, brave new world. The end. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You thought that would make me mad? Uh, I I thought a poem that used in earnest the phrase the manliness of men not derogatorily would make you mad but it's but it's it's not earnest is it it sounds satirical to me no i think it i think it's i mean i think it's winking i think the whole thing is winking including presumably his use of the word semen um Mm -hmm. but uh but i think what it seems to capture to me is not like is not the greatness of men and is not like any special qualities actually inhering in men, but the experience in this teenage girl of beholding this sort of like elemental category and like feeling something and recognizing something for the first time. Like whether or not any, like we know a lot of the sailors were definitely not, not Horatian models of stoic virtue uh some of them are just downright creeps but but she sort of perceives in them something that she just had never gotten to see before and it's just exciting and delightful and it's like it's such a strangely it's like it's funny in that like all human experience is sort of small and comical seen from a cosmic scale but it also just seems like like this strange sweet poem about this experience that people have when they kind of come of age in a certain way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, sure, but also, I mean, I've only just heard it once, but it's a tiny little moment snapshot, mm-hmm. which I guess suggests what's going to come after. It's going to get worse. Well, it's going to get, I mean, for her, not really for her, though. Like, she doesn't, like, Caliban threatens to rape her before the play ever begins. We know that. And that's part of why Prospero treats him the way he does. And 
the soldier, like the 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 sailors, and especially the the aristocrats, get treated, or the nobles get treated to some some spooky supernatural tricks by Prospero, and 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 he you know makes Ferdinand do a bunch of Sisyphean brute labor involving logs for no reason except to test his metal. But I don't think there's any like great ugliness that Miranda bears witness to. Like I think I think okay. in the play as well as in the poem, I think like Shakespeare includes every ounce of irony that Ransom could include there. Like Oh Brave New World being both like maybe in her in her mind at that moment, just an expression of wonder and delight, but also of course as we use the phrase Brave New World and, and as um uh what's his name? Who's the fucking sci-fi writer Huxley Huxley used it later like clearly it it also just means a sort of a an awe in beholding something beyond our ken so I think like that's there but I don't think it's a poem in like if this were Cordelia you know at the beginning of Lear saying like fathers are the best you'd be like woof man this is rough this is going downhill fast um like you know sisters they stick together you know like whatever like you know that that would be terrible but here i think like because miranda basically and like doesn't just have a happy ending but like basically has a happy play mm. it's like, like the, the some people call the tempest a comedy some people call it a romance because it's like there's kind of conflict but it's not like measure for measure conflict it's like it's all kind of play pretend I don't know. I don't know. Ransom. I just, I'm charmed by it, but I'm also charmed yeah. by it in the same way that I was charmed when I heard that uh, when, when um, Rosanna Warren met John Crow Ransom, uh, uh, Warren, Robert Wynn Warren's daughter, who is the, she's depicted in the opening stanza, I believe, of Promises, which won, his, won him his second Pulitzer um, as a little girl. Uh, when she met John Crow Ransom, she, <laughs> she ordered him into her little red wagon and he obeyed and she pulled him around the house and he just sat sat uh, cross-legged oh. and, and his suit. i mean he was always like three-piece suit and tie um <laughs> and he was a very, he was famously a very small man but he was very dapper but yeah, yeah she just gorgeous. carted him around the house i love that it's so pretty yeah. oh man i was talking to eleanor about this the other day but like i just wish i had the kind of memory that that people like you do just like that recall mm. i cannot do it i mean i've had like three hours sleep so sure, yeah. i'm not um not at my best anyway but like that is that is one of the my my very like shaky totally unresearched theory is that it, that is a masculine feminine thing like i can remember so much stuff but it's so useless when it comes to conversations like this <laughs> just like how do you meet like a like a uh what do you like you you have like you if you said who's or you just like um names dates facts like unless it's really really important to me i can't just sort of i just have so little at my fingertips um like if you said to me like oh what's the name of king lear's daughter i'd be like oh, i'll have to go look that up even though i know like i know right yeah 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 well yeah. but that but i, I don't it's think that's i actually don't know that that's different at all because i didn't i didn't respond with her name to a question i that's what i was reminded of whereas when mm -hmm. i needed to su supply myself with the name of huxley i couldn't yeah. so i think no, i think it's I just know. a matter it's of following different. associations though like i don't i'm not good at trivia yeah i don't know that's a that's a weak theory but i'm working on it yeah it's um, i don't know yeah. it's 
partly it's got to be partly just willingness to blather right <laughs> yeah presumably <laughs> yeah i think i picked the wrong gig we did i did actually think i read that that little i read the transcript of that at least part of that um conversation about traveling through the dark oh yeah I, it's funny the there's a mary hood short story called manly conclusions that actually felt relevant to that conversation because it's and the whole the whole like weight of the story is that it's about a little boy doing what he thinks a man would do and it's of course mm. the, con the the result is is horrifying um but you referred to traveling through the dark being where's the line yeah so kim stafford which i guess was his wife or daughter wife? daughter i think daughter? Yeah. okay she said someone told me it was used at annapolis to train military officers difficult decision making skills yeah how do you make an impossible decision and they talk a lot about oh this poem about making an impossible decision like having to you know be decisive and make and, and choose in that moment and have the weight of the world on your shoulders and have to choose one i had a totally different not only did i have a different like draw different conclusions from the poem but i also had a totally different set of assumptions about why it was used at annapolis oh really um yeah okay. but i think but it is a, i think i mean it's as they say it's a much overexposed poem but it's also a great poem do you want to read it sure i only know this poem because we read it so that we could read armand trout's traveling through the yard oh i don't know which that is a which is a parody is it good uh, it's a little bit yeah it's it's i thought it was funny the first time uh, it's a little bit hard to dig out Okay, shall I read this Stafford yeah. poem now? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. please. All right. Traveling through the dark, I found a deer dead on the edge of the Wilson River Road. It is usually best to roll them into the canyon. That road is narrow. To swerve might make more dead. By glow of the taillight, I stumbled back of the car and stood by the heap. A doe, a recent killing. She had stiffened already, almost cold. I dragged her off. She was large in the belly. My fingers touching her side brought me the reason. Her side was warm. Her fawn lay there, waiting, alive, still never to be born. Beside that mountain road, I hesitated. The car aimed ahead its lowered parking lights. Under the hood purred the steady engine. I stood in the glare of the warm exhaust turning red. Around our group, I could hear the wilderness listen. I thought hard for all of us, my only swerving, then pushed her over the edge into the river. Ugh, I hate it. I hate it. You hate it? Yeah. And it's, I think it's, I thought hard Ugh. for us all, at least in my version. Um, yeah, sorry. I thought hard for us all. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No. So you hate this <laughs> Do you want me to do that again? No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um... I think it is very self-important. Mm. And then listening to the interviews with Stafford's kids, and I think he's in it as well, actually. Oh, no, I watched a, a YouTube video of him reading it, and he talks about writing it and just about how he he had this exact experience and then went home and the next morning his kids, as they usually did in the morning, asked him what happened last night. And he told them this story. Uh, he told them all, all the detail of the story. And then he realized, given their reaction, that it was probably worth writing a poem about. 
and there's just something really irksome about that just like I don't know it's just that thing of like centering the human and then the human using the experience of using other stuff just to make a very pretty poem that makes the poet sound heroic when really this is just like a shitty scenario it's shitty for everyone there's something about it yeah i mean there's like i never want to hear poets talk about writing their poems at least if i like the poems yeah. you know yeah, like yeah, it, yeah i just don't but i also don't think it has any real connection to it mm. like i didn't i don't i assume most of the poets i like would have dumb things to say about most of the poems that they've written that i like totally totally yeah so the the it the as you pointed out and as was confirmed in this conversation this poem was used at annapolis to train military officers officers difficult decision making skills to me this is not at all a poem about making a difficult decision like i don't Why not? well the 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 doe is dead the fawn is not dead yet but can't survive and the deer is is potentially blocking the road so i don't i don't think what he does is nice and good but i do sort of think that that in the context of the poem as a whole there's not really much other choice like there's not yeah. really much else he can do and this is probably given what we know the most responsible thing to do because otherwise he would what he would leave it let it die and then possibly let it cause a wreck he would manually kill the fawn which seems sort of ghastly Mm. Um, it seems like this is this is sort of the even if it's not like deterministically inevitable it's it's hard to imagine there being another different better obvious thing that this is sort of what what a thoughtful person was going to have to do other than like unless he just wanted to withdraw himself and, and like pretend he hadn't seen pretend he hadn't been part of that situation. yeah yeah like if he was honestly confronting it then this was probably the thing to do mm. and i was guessing that they taught it at annapolis not to instruct their their charges and in, in how to make you know thoughtful deliberative uh you know in the moment decisions but rather in order to help them accept that there was no choice to make that they had to go ahead with what they had been told to do Mm. like the um the um gandhi's favorite book the bhagavad-gita translated by Ahmed majmadar is, a, is a, the the totally bizarre argument of that book is like arjuna saying i'm the greatest archer in the world anybody i try to fire my arrow at will die all of the people on the other side of the field are family members of mine i don't want to kill them i don't want to fight a war against my family particularly knowing that i'm I'm such a like God blessed warrior that I'm going to win and they're all going to be dead. And I don't want that. And so I would rather throw down my, my bow and arrow and not fight and 
God literally comes to him in the form of his chariot driver and says, it's okay, kill all of them. I, mean, <laughs> do you, I put you here on earth. God, the gods put you here on earth to kill motherfuckers. Go kill your family. The, and he says, thanks, thanks God. Thanks, Vishnu. Or uh, uh, what is it? It's not Vishnu. It's in, it is Vishnu, but it's in the uh, Krishna. He's in the incarnation of Krishna. He says, thank you, Krishna. I'm going to go kill my family now. And then that's the happy ending. <laughs> and that feels a little bit like like the, the military interpretation of this. It's like, go ahead and kill. Like, go ahead and push it over the edge. Like, you you ha- you don't really have a choice. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually do find it to be a, an affecting poem. Um, I just don't think about him lecturing his kids the next day or trying to tell documentary makers why the poem is important i just find it to be i just find it to be touching and to ring true and to be very well put Um, yeah i used to i used to it's just it's something about the fact that he comes off as heroic oh does he do you find it like do you think like the conclusion of the poem is meant to give him an aura of of like a a hard man who makes good times to use that to, to in, in, invoke yeah, that weird yeah name. that's that's the sense i get that's the sense i get like i did the hard thing and now i'm gonna now i'm gonna write a poem about it and there's something about that that fawn which is like just to get extremely um like misty-eyed for a second like the fawn is like alive in this poem the whole time like is she still alive in the poem Mm -hmm. and uh and she's just living there just being with this (laughs) with conversations like this going on yeah (laughs) i don't know i can't articulate it it just irks me i just i just don't like it there's something about it maybe listeners can help me like unpack what it is that like pisses me off so much because i just i don't know why I have this reaction now. I didn't used to. I used to think it was very clever and beautiful. You know you know what actually is is telling about what you said in that documentary about him him talking to is that this is I've never pushed a fucking deer off a cliff. Mm. But there are this is exactly the kind of thing you would not tell your children. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, I, this was, is exactly yeah. the story I would I would tell them about all of the other things and I would specifically not and I might tell their mom after they went to bed like this sucked so bad I had to fucking kill this deer but like yeah. you specifically don't tell your kids this story mm. or at least I wouldn't you know yeah no I thought that was I thought that detail was gross not that I have any sense of what's appropriate or inappropriate to tell kids at the kitchen table in the morning but I don't know I mean maybe and maybe it even is a, I mean but it just I don't know. Like I, t- I tend to be very squeamish about s- like restrictions on. Like I, I always wanted to read weird, violent stuff as a kid, and mm. my parents were sort of, you know, gave me some free reign, but also tried to prevent me from reading things that then, I, of course, I very easily found and read anyway. But it, and then I would see like ridiculously violent, weird movies at friends houses and things and so like my my inclination is always like well you know you know like she's a even like my eight-year-old like she's a thoughtful girl like 
But then I was setting up this little Chromebook for her and I had to go through and like approve the like restricting websites and things. And it was like graphic violence and like overt sexuality. Like, yeah, yeah. I think I'll go ahead and leave that off, yeah. off, off yeah. limits for now. Like, yeah. you know, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like maybe the really wise thing would be if we were like those, like, you know, Norse tribes where you just like the, like everybody lives in the same hut and you all, you like see your parents conceiving your brothers and sisters every night. Like, <laughs> I don't know, man, but I'm going to, I'm going to not tell my daughters about killing the fucking deer, the fucking pregnant deer. I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think it's a good, I think it's a good poem. And I think like, and it, it even, whether I should have these feelings about masculinity or not, it even gets at some of that sense of like, what I, you know, intuitively feel as a kind of a masculine duty. Yeah, that you should like, be able to do. Like yeah. this is the large scale version of killing the spider. Yeah. Yeah, like I'm never more, like Tom grew up on a farm mm. and he has stories about the stuff that he just sort of had to do as a kid um and as a teenager that i just i'm like I, I couldn't i couldn't have done that like you know hit a hit a roo coming home and it's not quite dead and you've got to like got to take What's care of it kangaroo oh kangaroo oh jesus christ yeah, yeah oh yeah. Ye oof. wow yeah and that's what that what is that in i mean have you ever been in proximity because i can't imagine how those things register as wild animals like do they <laughs> do they feel as like goofily cartoon human as they look in like depictions of them from a distance like they can be a little bit scary like a big male if he stands up because they 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 hang out in groups mobs we call and they them. get like they never stop growing i read somewhere like they get big what Really? Yeah. Whether they, <laughs> I, I mean, I think they like. I think they like die, and so they won't don't get that big. But like, they if they live a long time, they don't stop. Nat they don't naturally stop growing, is what I read. Oh, that sounds like a drop bear type of myth. But um, drop bear. Australians will tell uh, people from overseas that koalas. There's koalas, and then there's drop bears, which just like they live in the trees and they drop onto you, and like they just fucking kill you. But they look. <laughs> they look like koalas. I'm not sure what a drop bear's meant to look like. Uh, you never see one coming, so <laughs> that's right. They just drop okay. on you. All right. Yeah. Um, no, kangaroos are—they're very pretty, and like they're like big cats. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, if a big male sees you coming, and yeah, he can like stand right up on his hind legs and kind of like go to his full height, and you're just like, oh fuck, I'm gonna get out of here. Yeah. And they're they're pretty fast, right? Yeah. I mean, they yeah. do their weird jumping run, but they're like fast. Yeah, really fast. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions about Australian animals? <laughs> so do yeah. Do um to me the Anne Sexton poem is more a poem about being a writer than about being a woman, right? Like it's maybe specifically about how of the things that won't satisfy you if you are a woman and a writer that would be supposed to satisfy you if you were a woman and not a writer. But do you like, do you carry around any particular, I mean, it seems like you, you feel like a great sensitivity to your friends and peers and like, like aligning with social expectations in any given setting, but like, you don't seem like you actually carry around 
much of a burden when it comes to femininity broadly? Mm, I think I do more than I let on. And I think that kind of coming back to what we were saying earlier, like I think that is that is most that has been most present and painful for me when it comes to the the motherhood thing. Um, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I thought about that every waking minute of every day for a decade. Yeah. And what it would mean if I didn't do it and what it would mean for me as a as a woman, how I would read in the world. Yeah, I, I really want to like do an episode just about this, but I'm not really sure how to, how to tie it back to poetry. Well, let me just ask you, like, how much of that, if you thought about that all the time for 10 all the years. All time, yeah. Because that was like, you'd say like 30, 30-ish or what, like what, what late I started, 20s? Or? I started thinking about it at, at about 28. Okay. And it only started to fade like a, a, about last year, really. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah. So how much of that, like compulsive thought or how much of that time was that because presumably in thinking about it you thought about different possibilities right Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. i could do this i could do that this is what this might end up looking like this is what that might end up looking like so how much of that garden of forking paths was occupied with things like would was occupied with the part of your life that is writing like this would make oh. it harder. This would make it easier. This would make it more, like how much, mm-hmm. of, how big a role did writing play in that set of permutations and possibilities and worries? I don't think it played much of a role at all, actually. Really? There are, like, yeah, there's obviously like plenty of of models of like writers Both and, who are yeah. also mothers, and like yeah, they, yeah, 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 you yeah, know, yeah. they seem to kind of make it work completely fine. So I don't think I ever saw it as like I won't be able to be. Because I'm such a like lazy, um, you know, I don't, it's not like I get up at six every morning and like write and read poetry for two hours. Like I sort of barely do it at all most of the time. Right. So it's like, <laughs> I may as well have a three-year-old, you know, yeah. um, for all the, all the effort I give it. So yeah, no, that wasn't, that wasn't part of it. No. Oh, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of shocking to me because you, I mean, as you said earlier, like it's hard to identify what is more important in your life than writing. Yeah, but I don't think I ever expected that. You didn't think having a child would affect that or not having a child would affect that? No, I don't think so because I think, if anything, I sort of thought that that might give me... Like I looked after my nephew once a week for for a little over a year when he was sort of between one and a half to, to two and a half. And um, I realized in doing that just how much how much time you have, just huge, huge stretches of like blank time. But also like your, your mind's obviously on the baby. But I could imagine that I would get to a point where it's like, okay, well, baby's asleep. Let's, let's yeah. read something. Let's write something. So, yeah. And again, I, I could see models of women all over the place who had done it totally successfully. So. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I it guess wasn't a, it wasn't a choice between being a great poet and being a mother. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. I mean, but like, it's just interesting to me that it wasn't even. It didn't really factor in at all. No, because I mean, yeah, there's big, way bigger stuff. Well, like what? Because you said there's not bigger stuff. You said like that's the big thing, right? Oh I mean, no! Certainly, if you have like, a child, like that becomes the other big thing. That's like <laughs> you can't really compare them, but 
But like if, if poetry is the big, big thing in your life and you were thinking mm-hmm. about having a different, incomparable, siloed off other giant big thing in your life, mm. what what was the what were the other like mammoth elements that were you were having to Tetris in there? Oh, I what I mean by that is um there were bigger factors that were that I was wrestling with in terms of the decision such as <laughs> what kind of mother would I be no I mean yeah I would be interested <laughs> to hear yeah. more about that partly because I I definitely thought for a long time I would not have kids because it seemed like an obviously terrible idea hey is that Tom yeah hey Matthew <laughs> but uh but then and then like having kids I thought like oh shit oh well like a shrug like Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing, though. It's so different for men. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, but not just, but not. I mean, but not just because of the, the enormous physical toll. In the beginning, like you're talking about a larger, longer, concern. Oh, I sort of also mean like in terms of, you could decide now at forty. Oh, right, right, right. I think I'll have kids. yeah, Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas I like, I felt particularly keenly that thing of like, not only do you have to decide, but you got to decide it now, right. like today. And I can remember my my older sister had her first baby at thirty six, and so when I had my thirty sixth birthday, I was like, I'll, I'll know by then, I'll know by then, it'll be fine. And I just spent the whole of my thirty sixth birthday just like crying because I just still didn't know. Um, using up all my good content on you, bro. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, yeah, it's, I'm, I, uh, and you, do you know the Sheila Hetty book that was all about this? Yeah, I did. I couldn't, I couldn't face reading it. I was like, yeah. that's great, Sheila. I'm not reading that book. She did a really good interview on Commonplace back when it was good. <laughs> did Commonplace um, go bad? Oh, totally. Yeah. That was so funny though in your email. Like, what has Rachel Zucker done for you lately? No, I mean, you know, I got stickers. Um, and yours are, I have yours in an envelope. I just need to go over to the mail. Uh, the uh, post office and figure out how to send this. Oh, and I got your postcard. Oh, sweet. Which, nice. Uh, which is great. And I like that poem. It, it reminded me of, um, there's a Anthony Heck poem called Adam, which is oh. my son's name. And it has a, because it's, it's it's written from a distance because his, uh, I guess his ex-wife, I don't know all the particulars, but I know his wife or his former wife left the country and took the child with her. And so he then like this oh. went a long time without seeing him but i reread it and it has some really great stuff in it including the title line of the the book it it was in the hard hours which is which is like a really amazing book Mm -hmm. um but it also rereading it now it's so self-centered right so like because he talks about like you will he says like adam there will be many hard hours which is the 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 line you know the many hard distundis from the old uh the, the middle english poem um and he's talking about like the you know like imagining your life in the future and what it'll be like whether you're a kid or you're older but but throughout the poem he keeps coming back to like and then you're gonna think about me and wonder about who this character is he keeps coming back to <laughs> me and then he like the end is still it's like moving but in the context of the whole poem it starts to feel a little bit self-indulgent where he says like i i send this i send these lines out to you this song out to you it it will it shall reach you yet is how it ends but it's but the whole thing is like Talk about your fucking son. Like, I don't know, like, wonder about him. <laughs> but it's all about, like, your father's a 
fucking badass poet and you're gonna I bet you're gonna wonder about him and I bet you're gonna <laughs> don't worry he's gonna be he's gonna be getting mad tail and having martinis and like I don't know it's just like I knew what it. Is, I knew how it. is it I mean I love Anthony Agni he has so many great poems but it's it also like it just seems like why is this you're framing for this fucking poem about your son <laughs> exactly god damn it Anthony Hecht yeah, I mean, he was he was a, a you know a presumptuous white man of that generation. Who, like in his case, like I mean, as with a number, like he he actually was really gifted. He just also was a, kind of a jackass. Yeah, kind of um, knew it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, totally. I mean, yeah, definitely knew it and didn't. Yeah, yeah. He just at least had the grace not to publish quite as much as Robert Lowell. That was my conversation with Alice. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you are furious and and uh, can't wait to let me know how much, then please do write in it to sleericketts at gmail.com. I await your righteous indignation. Thank you for listening. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Yeah.